0: No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. With those words recorded here at the heart of Luke chapters 5 and 6, Jesus is setting the stage uh, for what he is all about as his ministry begins here in Israel. He's come to usher in a new chapter of God's salvation plan. He's bringing new joy, new life, new hope, new redemption, new possibilities, and it's going to look different than everyone's expecting. It will break with the traditions of the leaders. It it means change is coming as he arrives, like wine that is ripening in Leather wineskins, Jesus is going to stretch everyone's tidy, little, confined expectations and make way for the massive, expansive, universe-altering kingdom that he is breaking into the world and and it's coming true in himself. We saw it last time that he filled the nets to the breaking point with fish. He filled Levi's house to the breaking point with tax collectors. He uh, it filled the ranks of his inner circle of disciples with all kinds of unlikely disciples. And now Jesus will fill the Pharisees' minds to breaking point as he wields with increasing boldness his miracle working power. So grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapters 5 and 6 this morning. Again, we're sort of weaving through half of this zippering that Luke is doing is he brings together these two themes of those who are being drawn to Jesus as disciples and those who are being repulsed and and running away from him. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26, and Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. You'll find today's readings on pages 860 over to 862 in the Pew Bible, 860 to 62. And I love the glimpse that we get of Jesus in these chapters. He's bold. He's tenacious. He's gutsy and daring, and he does it all for his people. So let's look at this. We're going to see Jesus the cleanser, Jesus the forgiver, Jesus the protector, and Jesus the restorer. The cleanser, forgiver, protector, and restorer. There's your outline for this morning. Would you bow your heads as we jump in and read God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we want to see Jesus. Show us who he is, and help us realize what he can do for each and every one of us if we will comply with what he does, if we will surrender to his Lordship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, Jesus, the cleanser, the cleanser, Chapter 5, verse 12. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Just pause for a moment. So word has traveled far and wide, and uh, everyone knows... Has heard that Jesus of Nazareth has come, and not only is he teaching with authority, he's wielding power, miraculous power. He's healing people, delivering them. And so many are coming, streaming from far and wide, including this leper to him. And Dr. Luke tells us this man was full of leprosy. So, not, not just patches of highly contagious skin disease, but he's full of it, he's, he's covered. This is an advanced case, um, Luke wants us to know. He's probably relegated, uh, as was the custom, to a leper colony. In other words, he couldn't live in town because of his disease. He had to live outside uh, with others who shared his contagion. Uh, he had to be quarantined most of the time. He, 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 nobody wanted to catch this disease. He couldn't go to the temple uh, because he was considered unclean. As a matter of fact, lepers had to, to cry out wherever they went. If someone else kind of came in vicinity, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean, stay away. And people would scurry off. Because if you accidentally came in contact with a leper, uh, you became unclean until you were able to prove, after a period of quarantine, that you had not contracted the disease. So imagine this man's life. He's isolated. Uh, there's stigma on his life. He's facing massive amounts of rejection and shame. It's very sad. He's an outcast. He's a, a threat, perceived threat by others. Uh, he's untouchable. He's untouchable. And then he comes to Jesus Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Look at that faith. Verse 13 Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Do you see it? Did you see it? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. I I wonder how long it had been since he had felt human contact. But Jesus is so tender and bold, throwing hazard to the wind, he reaches out and puts his hand on this man's highly contagious, unclean body and heals him. I love it. Immediately. Not use this cream for six months, three times a day, and you might get better. No, 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 no. Just one touch, boom, gone. Do you realize what this means, friends? Jesus... It means Jesus is technically unclean now. You see that? He's technically unclean because he's been in contact with a leper. Now, in reality, something like reverse contagion has occurred here. (laughs) Normally, it's the disease that contaminates the healthy, but now in Jesus' case, it's the healthy that contaminates the, the diseased and heals him, but nobody has a category for that. Verse 14, he charged him to tell no one but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. He says, go show yourself cured to the priest. Make the offerings required in Leviticus 14, two birds along with some cedar wood, scarlet thread and some hyssop. And uh, it was sort of an exercise to ask for the Lord's healing and, and then they were to come back and see if the healing occurred and and Jesus says, I, the only thing is just leave out the bit about me doing the healing. Just leave that part out. Keep it quiet. I don't need a big stir in Jerusalem right now. But verse 15, even, now even more the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and, healed of, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So did the man do what Jesus asked? Did he keep quiet? You got to read between the lines here. No, no, he didn't do it. He charged him, don't tell anyone. And the next verse, but now even more, the report about him went abroad, even further, right? It lost containment. The, The guy, he couldn't. He couldn't, say, he, couldn't say, he couldn't be quiet, right? He, he, he didn't do what he was asked. In the very next verse, we're going to see Pharisees and teachers of the law gathering from all over the place, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, right, where the temple is. In other words, it slipped out. The guy just couldn't keep quiet, and now Jesus ends up in the hot seat, okay? So you see what's happening here. It's very remarkable to me. In a sense, Jesus and this leper have uh, traded places. They've traded places. The leper was the one that everyone viewed with suspicion. He was an outcast. He was a threat. He was untouchable. But now it's Jesus who's gonna be the one who's viewed with suspicion. He's the one who's gonna have to go to desolate places in isolation and pray. He's gotta get away. Uh, He's the one who's now perceived to be a threat. Uh, The Pharisees are going to consider him untouchable. They're going to push him out to the fringes. You see that? So, in a sense, the leper did contaminate Jesus, sort of. Not literally, but figuratively. The way this story unfolds, Jesus is exchanging places with him. This healing comes at a price. And Jesus cleanses by becoming unclean. You see that? Jesus cleanses by becoming unclean. He touches the untouchable. He heals and bears the cost himself. He gives this man his life back and then sets in motion the very events that will end up taking his own life. This is amazing. Who does that? Jesus, the cleanser that's who. Jesus does that. So he's a cleanser. He's also the forgiver. Look at at verse 17. And one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So here's the inquisition panel, you see. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. So here comes the audit team, right? They're going to figure out what's going on and If they need to, they're going to get Jesus in line. And Luke tells us the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. (laughs) You could just smell the trouble brewing, can't you? Verse 18, "...behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus." (laughs) <laughs> Such a great scene, right? So here's Jesus. He's in the crowd. He's surrounded by people. It's standing room only. They've got somebody. They want to get in. They can't get through the door. So they decide, we'll go up on the roof deck and, uh, you know, this would be a nice spot for a skylight, you know, that'd be a nice feature. And we can get him down at the same time. Let's help this homeowner out, right? So they open up the roof, which was, you know, clay tiles and thatching and all kinds of stuff. And they pull all that stuff aside and they lower him down on his pallet, down through the hole in the ceiling, right in front of Jesus. I love these guys, whoever they are. Their motto is, whatever it takes, we're gonna get our friend to Jesus, right? Whatever it takes. And oh, friends, that we would have that kind of a heart for people around us who are far from Jesus who need him desperately whatever it takes we're going to get our friends to Jesus this is the right heart Jesus says verse 20 he saw their faith and he said man your sins are forgiven you wait what what? Jesus he's paralyzed can't you see this we brought him here for a healing you're missing the whole point right can't you see his most pressing need Jesus can't you see it And that is the point. That is the point. Jesus sees this man, body and soul, the whole package, and gives his primary attention to the most life-threatening of his conditions. Because a soul paralyzed by sin is far more deadly than a body that is paralyzed by injury. And so Jesus heals him now of the deeper disease in his soul, the one that he and his friends hadn't even thought to ask about, and says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And with that statement, everything escalates, just escalates. The scribes and Pharisees who have come here to investigate Jesus, to get him in line if they need to, I mean, that's the situation. You realize Jesus could have laid low, right? He, he, he didn't have to heal this guy, not that day, not with them in the audience, not with, right? And if he did heal, he could have just kept it to a physical healing, you know? Why escalate it like this? But Jesus is raising the stakes. He's raising the stakes. Man, your sins are forgiven you. It's so gutsy. It's so daring. I love it. I love it. Verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, they're right, aren't they? They're right. The forgiveness of sins is the prerogative of God alone. And Jesus has them right where he wants them. He's playing them like a fiddle. Either he is a blasphemer And he's a mere mortal presuming to be God, act like God. Or there's more to him than meets the eye. And he is one, the the one to whom they owe their allegiance. This is the decision point. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their hearts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, huh? It's a savvy question. On the one hand, if Jesus is a fake, it's far easier to say your sins are forgiven you because who would know if it even happened, right? Anybody can say the words, your sins are forgiven you. That's easy. What's much harder to say, rise up and walk because if the guy doesn't get up, you're obviously a fraud, you're found out. But on the other hand, if Jesus is legitimate, Forgiving sins is way harder than healing a body. Doctors can heal bodies, but only God can heal the soul. So, which one's harder, Jesus says? Huh? Never mind. I'll do both. <laughs> Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Okay, there's your interpretation. Everything he's about to to do is in reinforcement of that truth. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, Luke says, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is utterly brilliant, friends. Jesus displays his divine authority. He outmaneuvers his opponents and unleashes healing in this man's body and soul. And notice, Jesus forgives by becoming unforgivable. Jesus forgives by becoming unforgivable. The Pharisees will never forgive Jesus for what he does this day. This charge of blasphemy will carry with Jesus, haunt him, even at his trial and crucifixion, it will still be there. It will go all the way to the cross. And in a sense, Jesus and this paralyzed man have switched places. This man was on the outside. He's the guilty one. He was helpless in every way. But now Jesus will be the one the Pharisees push to the outside. They will be the ones who condemn him as guilty, a sinner. They will hoist him helplessly up on a cross. And once again, don't you see, Jesus is exchanging places. This forgiveness comes at a cost. He's forgiving the undeserving, he's atoning, and he bears the cost in himself. He gives this man his life back, and then sets in motion the very events that will take his own life. Who does that? Jesus, the forgiver, that's who. That's who does that. He's a cleanser, the forgiver, and he's a protector. He's a protector. Hop on over to verse, I'm sorry, chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Well, a little background here. So, you guys know uh, the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, the fourth one is the, uh, to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy unto the Lord by not doing any work on the Sabbath. You can read about that in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. But the question is, what constitutes work? Hmm? What, what, what's real work, you know? One person's hobby might be another person's work. How do you sort it out? so to help everyone, the rabbis sat down over the years, and they, they amassed a list of 39 classes of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And included in that list was uh, harvesting uh, of your crops. If you were a farmer, you couldn't harvest your crops. That makes sense. And threshing of your grain, you know, separating the, the husk from the actual kernels that are where the nutrients are. And, and if you're a farmer, that's pretty hard work, and you're, you're deceased from that on the Sabbath. That makes sense. But now the Pharisees, who are already upset with Jesus, already annoyed, <laughs> are, they're, they're way too eager here, and they pounce on the disciples for having a snack, okay? And they're like, ah, you just plucked grain. Ha, that's harvesting you know, and you just rubbed it in your hands, that's threshing, you just, you, you know, you just, that's threshing, double violation, busted, that's where they're at, okay? Now watch how Jesus steps in as their protector. Verse 3, Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. This is, this is a fascinating response. Jesus is referring back to 1 Samuel 21 where David is, King David, the anointed king, is on the run from the king who's being deposed, Saul, and who's hunting him down. And he has men with him and they're on the run and they come to the town of Nob Uh, where the tabernacle is, and he's famished, uh, he and his men, and he goes to the priest and asks for food, and all the priest has is this sacred priestly bread. But the priest shares it with the future king, and the king gives it to his men with him. And and listen, here's the logic. Jesus says, look, if David and his men could eat the bread contrary to the law, then I and my disciples, we can eat this grain even if it's unlawful. That's the logic. Notice, he didn't argue with their definition of work. He, he doesn't say, look, your definition is absurdly tight. It's inappropriately applied in this case, which it obviously is, okay? It's obvious that they're just, you know, they're just, they're being, they're being mean about this, okay? They're trying to trap them. But he says, fine, fine, look, let's assume you're right. Let's assume you're right and it is unlawful to do what we're doing. David was God's anointed, the future king. He was special and his hunger superseded the prohibition. Logical inference, I'm God's anointed. I'm the future king. I'm special and my hunger supersedes the prohibition. And before they could throw up their hands and object to the audacity of his claim to Davidic privilege, he says, verse 5, he raises the ante. He says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Don't you just love this? He raises the stakes again. I'm not just King of Israel. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I get to decide what's right and what's wrong on the Sabbath because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) Now, here's the point. Jesus protects by becoming unprotected. You see this? The disciples, the Pharisees are coming after Jesus' disciples. And so he rises to defend them and puts himself in the way. He He decides, I'm gonna take the heat For my disciples he climbs into the crosshairs and makes himself a target and he gives them even more ammunition to come after him i'm the lord of the sabbath and see once again you see jesus is switching places he's exchanging spots with the disciples the disciples were the ones who were under attack they were the ones being accused for violating the Sabbath. But now Jesus has declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and now the Pharisees are going to come after him instead. Jesus is exchanging places, you see. This protection comes at a cost. Jesus protects the accused. He's accused. He stands up for them. He bears the cost himself as he offers himself up as an easy target so that his disciples might go free. (laughs) Who does that? Jesus, the protector. That's who. Jesus does that. He's a cleanser. He's a forgiver. He's a protector. Finally, he's a restorer, a restorer. Verse verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Okay, Mr. Lord of the Sabbath, how far are you going to take this, huh? This withered hand is hardly an emergency, it can wait till tomorrow, you know. If you heal him today on the Sabbath, we got gotcha. you. We got gotcha. you. Verse 8. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. <laughs> you can just feel the suspense building, can't you? What's going to happen? Verse 9. And Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it. What is the Sabbath for? What's it for? It's for restoration, it's for rest and renewal. The Sabbath was given by God to be a life-giving rhythm of restoration. And Jesus says, which is more in keeping with God's intention for creating the Sabbath, healing and life or destruction and death? Which one? Verse 10, and after looking around at them, (laughs) it's easy to scan in the room is looking them right in the eye. They're like, we dare you. And he just stares right back. (laughs) Don't you love this? And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. (laughs) I love this. Simply stretch out your hand. And it's restored. Jesus doesn't even touch him. Doesn't even lift a finger. Which is brilliant. Because how do they accuse him for violating the Sabbath? He didn't even move a muscle. (laughs) No visible work on Jesus' part. And yet... Everybody knows Jesus did this, right? Everyone knows that hand did not heal itself. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He exposes their motives and he calls their bluff. (laughs) I love this. Verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Friends, from this moment on, they are going to be plotting Jesus' destruction. And the irony is thick, isn't it? They're mad at Jesus for restoring life on the Sabbath, while in their hearts they're plotting his death. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or harm? To save life or destroy it? They're impaled on their own heartlessness. Wow. But see, friends, Jesus restores by becoming unrestorable. Jesus restores by becoming unrestorable. From this moment on, Jesus is unrestorable, irredeemable in the Pharisees' minds. This was his last chance, and he blew it, they think. There's no coming back from what he's done. He looked them in the eye, and he defied them. And it's as if the man with the withered hand and Jesus have switched places. He gives this man his hand back, and he sends the Pharisees off plotting on how they're going to crucify and nail through his hands. This restoration comes at a price, and Jesus takes it all into his own hands, and he says, I've got it. I've got it. Who does this? Jesus, the restorer, that's who, Jesus does that. He's the cleanser, he's the forgiver, he's the protector, he's the restorer, and friends, don't you see, Jesus is our substitute in every way. He's our substitute in every way. All of this is a foreshadowing of his cross work that is coming. Jesus is the cleanser who has come to remove the leprosy of our sin, to take it all upon himself, to be sullied and dirtied in our place, unclean. Jesus is the forgiver who will make atonement for our sin by becoming sin for us. Jesus is the protector who will stand between us and the accuser and offer his life in our place and die in his sights. He's the restorer who will Bring life by enduring death on our behalf. Friends, for on the cross, Jesus is gonna die in our place and for our sake. He's gonna bear all of our sin and shame and rise again to make us right with God. He's our substitute. He's dying for us. He's swapping it out with our place. He's trading places with us. He's our substitute in every way. And don't you see He's already doing what He will ultimately do. He is even now becoming the substitute on behalf of His people that will come in ultimate fullness when He climbs upon the cross. There is no healing without sacrifice. You can't save the world without laying down your life. Some of you have watched Endgame, the Marvel movie, Endgame. And I always am amazed at this. Tony Stark, who didn't lose anyone in the, in the big purging when half the planet died, doesn't have to enter the fight. He's got everything he needs. He's got his girlfriend, his kids. He's in a perfect place in peace and isolation. He doesn't have to get into the war. But he realizes he's the only one who can save the world. And so he steps into the fight that isn't his and he goes up against Thanos. Thanos is from the Greek word thanatos, it means death. And so he goes, the man of iron, goes to his own death, has the infinite power of the universe. He can do anything with it. He could save himself, but instead lays down his life to put death to death and to save the world. Why is that story so compelling? It's Jesus. It's His story. And you cannot save the world without laying down your life. We know this. We know this. This is the beauty and wonder Of the gospel. Think of what Isaiah 53, 4 to 6 says. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who does that? Jesus. That's who. He's our cleanser. He's our forgiver. He's our protector. He's our restorer. He's our substitute in every way. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Savior of the world. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, there is no one like you And there is no one like your Son, Jesus Christ, who doesn't back down from a fight, who stares all the brokenness and sickness and evil and death in the eye, and goes all in and calls its bluff. We admire Jesus Christ, the the healer, the cleanser, the forgiver, the protector, the restorer, our substitute. He is our hero and the Savior, the Lord. And We give him our lives because if Jesus is fighting for us, we're going to be fine because he's the hero who conquers all. We give him worship and glory and praise because he alone, is worthy. It's in his name that we pray and we sing. Amen.